Welcome to the first ever episode of Mr. O'Grady's History Time Machine Podcast. Today's episode, The Cold War. The intro music for today's podcast is the Soviet National Anthem. This podcast will explore U.S. history and modern world history topics to help students on their journey of discovery in history. Debuting today with The Cold War, Part 1, 1945 to 1962, as we explore the Cold War between the two post-World War II nuclear superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union. During the 1980s, I was a U.S. Air Force officer during the Cold War, first in U.S. Air Force jet pilot training, and later as a U.S. Air Force intelligence officer. My Air Force tactical fighter wing would have deployed to West Germany in the event of a war with the Soviet Union. So my daily intelligence briefings for our pilots, air crew, and the general and his staff always included top-secret intelligence about the Soviet threat. With that background, I hope you will enjoy this podcast about the Cold War. I want to begin by recognizing my amazing 7th and 8th grade history wizards at Menlo Park Academy in Cleveland, Ohio. Our charter school is Ohio's only school dedicated entirely to gifted learners. Today's episode of Mr. O'Grady's History Time Machine podcast will cover a brief overview of the Cold War from 1945 through 1962 as our time machine takes us back to 1945. 1945, of course, was the year World War II ended. In July 1945, Winston Churchill, despite his high approval ratings and remarkably after his heroic leadership during World War II, lost his re-election campaign to Clement Attlee's Labor Party, who won a resounding victory in England, making Attlee the new prime minister. On March 5, 1946, at the request of American President Harry S. Truman, Former Prime Minister Winston Churchill came to America to deliver this speech at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, where Churchill made this historic proclamation. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Churchill's Iron Curtain speech was prophetic as the Cold War would soon begin. Two historic peace conferences held near the end of World War II would decide the post-war fate of Europe. The big three leaders, FDR, Churchill, and Stalin, that attended the Yalta Conference in February 1945, would transition dramatically by the end of the Potsdam Conference that began in July 1945. The Potsdam Conference was located in Germany, outside the now-conquered Berlin, FDR had died on April 12, 1945, and Churchill, who began the Potsdam Conference by representing Britain, was voted out of office and was replaced by the new British Prime Minister, Clement Attlee. The Potsdam Conference, July 17 through August 2, 1945, was the last of the World War II peace conferences, this time featuring American President Harry S. Truman, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and his successor, Clement Attlee, along with Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin. 
Although talks centered primarily on post-war Europe, the new Big Three also issued a declaration demanding unconditional surrender from Japan. The Truman Doctrine of Containment of the Soviet Union began in March 1947, when based on intelligence in the form of the famous Long Telegram by brilliant American diplomat George Kennan, U.S. President Harry S. Truman announced to Congress that the United States would henceforth support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by giving them military aid, thereby vowing to help all democratic nations from the threat of communism in the form of the Marshall Plan as America gave aid to struggling countries in Europe to help them to rebuild and to help avoid the threat of the spread of Soviet influence. Many historians point to Stalin's Berlin blockade as the event that officially began the Cold War in June 1948. And that event certainly confirmed Churchill's assertion that an Iron Curtain had descended across the European continent. Based on agreements at the Allied conferences at Yalta and Potsdam, the Allies had partitioned Germany into four zones of occupation, a Soviet zone, an American zone, a British zone, and a French zone. Berlin, the German capital city, was also divided into the same four occupation zones. However, the entire city of Berlin was surrounded deep inside the Soviet occupation zone. Suddenly, in June 1948, the Soviets blocked all rail, highway, and road access to West Berlin leaving West Berliners with no access to food, fuel, medicine, or other essential goods. So the Truman White House, with the full support and participation of other Western allies, including Britain, instituted the Berlin Airlift. American and British cargo planes flew around the clock to supply West Berlin the heroic Berlin airlift persisted from June 1948 through May 1949, delivering vital supplies and relief to West Berlin. With America having the atom bomb, Stalin did not dare shoot down our cargo planes. He also did not want to risk a war after the Soviet Union had just lost 20 million people in World War II. So Stalin's ploy to surround and starve West Berlin into submission under Soviet control had failed. In 1949, the United States and 11 other Western nations formed the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, called NATO, for their mutual defense. An attack on one NATO country by the Soviet Union would be considered an attack on all. NATO was led by the great American general, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who would leave NATO to run for the Republican nomination for president in 1952. The Soviet Union and the communist nations under its control in Eastern Europe would later establish their own mutual defense alliance called the Warsaw Pact in 1955. Back to the Marshall Plan. The original Marshall Plan was open to all countries, including those in Eastern Europe, that were coming under Soviet domination. 
But Stalin decided the risk of allowing Western aid into the Soviet bloc presented too much risk of American influence. The Marshall Plan initially called for sending $5 billion in aid, but by the end of the program, transferred over $12 billion, mainly to Western Europe. That would be over $128 billion in equivalent dollars today. The Marshall Plan was a spectacular success. By the early 1950s, when the plan ended, most European economies were achieving higher GDP economic levels than their pre-war 1939 levels. On June 25, 1950, North Korea invaded South Korea as the United Nations Security Council voted to intervene. We will explore the Korean War in more detail in a future podcast. However, I do want to commend the brave actions of our American GIs as part of a United Nations action on the Korean Peninsula that would continue for three years until an armistice on July 27, 1953, and a demilitarized zone near the 38th parallel that remains until today. No discussion of the Cold War would be complete without examining the second Red Scare in America when Joseph McCarthy claimed that large numbers of communists had infiltrated the U.S. State Department. Before the McCarthy hearings, the House Un-American Activities Committee began a series of hearings designed to show that communist subversion in the United States was real. The House Un-American Activities Committee interrogated many in the movie industry, insisting that they renounce their communist beliefs and to expose other communists in Hollywood. Many in Hollywood lost their jobs and many others were blacklisted, including screenwriters, directors, actors, and others. Beginning in 1950, Senator Joseph McCarthy and his Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations expanded this investigation to those who worked in the federal government, specifically in the State Department. Thousands of government workers in Washington were investigated, fired, and even prosecuted. As anti-communist hysteria spread, many innocent Americans were investigated by McCarthy's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations in the Senate and subjected to the interrogation Are you now, or have you ever been, a member of the Communist Party? There's only one Communist Party. The Communist Party that puts out this pamphlet, setting the line for the Communists in the United States, is the same Communist Party as the one that tells Fifth Amendment Communists how they should testify. 1953 was another momentous year for the Cold War. On January 20, 1953, Dwight D. Eisenhower was inaugurated President of the United States. And then, on March 5, 1953, Joseph Stalin died. The mass murderer of millions of his own Soviet people was dead. A power struggle in the Kremlin would result in Nikita Khrushchev becoming leader of the Soviet Communist Party, on September 7, 1953. Meanwhile, a nuclear arms race between the United States and Soviet Union began when the Soviet Union tested an atom bomb of their own in 1949.
This Soviet A-bomb was far ahead of schedule because of nuclear secrets smuggled out of Los Alamos by German-born scientist and Soviet spy Klaus Fuchs. That would lead President Truman to announce in January 1950 that the United States was building an even more destructive atomic weapon, the hydrogen bomb. The Soviets, of course, would eventually build an H-bomb of their own. Back in America, the ever-present threat of nuclear annihilation resulted in people building bomb shelters in their backyards and civil defense films for children featuring a turtle named Bert and civil defense warnings like this one. This is basic civil defense information from the Department of Defense, Office of Civil Defense, Washington. If you receive warning of an enemy attack, get to the nearest fallout shelter promptly. But if you're caught in the open and there's a brilliant nuclear flash in the distance, take cover immediately. Even miles away, you may be exposed within seconds to a searing heat wave from the explosion, followed by a blast wave and flying debris. When I was a schoolboy in the 1960s, I remember practicing those duck-and-cover drills, hiding under our desk in the event of a nuclear explosion. Fallout shelter signs at our school pointed to the basement of our school as a place to somehow survive a nuclear blast and its eventual nuclear fallout. One of my favorite topics about the Cold War is the space race. On October 4, 1957, the Soviets launched Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite, into Earth's orbit. Sputnik's launch came as a surprise to the American government, as it also included the threat of the Soviets delivering a nuclear warhead into U.S. airspace. The United States followed up in 1958 by launching its own satellite, Explorer 1, under the direction of former Nazi rocket scientist Werner von Braun. The space race was underway. President Eisenhower created the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, America's federal agency dedicated to space exploration, on October 4, 1958. However, the Soviets took the lead in the space race by launching the first man into space, Yuri Gagarin, in April 1961. America followed up in May 1961 with the launch of Alan Shepard, America's first man in space. And then, on February 20, 1962, Ohio's own astronaut John Glenn, aboard his Mercury Friendship 7 spacecraft, became America's first man to orbit in space. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Capsule is turning around. In May 1961, President John F. Kennedy then made the bold proclamation that America would land a man on the moon by the end of the decade of the 1960s. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. President Kennedy's challenge would come true, of course, on July 20th, 1969 when NASA's Apollo 11 mission would make Neil Armstrong the first man to set foot on the moon, winning the space race for the Americans. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. 
Roger Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. America had won the space race to the moon. I'd like to close this Cold War podcast with one of the great speeches in American history, President John F. Kennedy's speech in West Berlin. To me, the spirit of this speech sums up what I hope all free people think about the Cold War. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is, Ich bin ein Berliner. There are many people in the world who really don't understand or say they don't. What is the great issue between the free world and the communist world? Let them come to Berlin. There are some who say, there are some who say that communism is the wave of the future. Let them come to Berlin. And there are some who say, in Europe and elsewhere, we can work with the communists. Let them come to Berlin. And there are even a few who say that it's true that communism is an evil system, but it permits us to make economic progress. Lass sie nach Berlin in common. Let them come to Berlin. In the next episode of Mr. O'Grady's History Time Machine, we will explore the story of perhaps the closest the United States and Soviet Union ever came to a nuclear war, the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962. Leading up to the Cuban Missile Crisis, Soviet Premier Khrushchev had once said, we will bury you, about NATO and America. Relations between the two superpowers were made much worse on May 1, 1960, when a U.S. U-2 spy plane, piloted by Francis Gary Powers, was shot down over the Soviet Union during the end of the Eisenhower administration. The Cuban Missile Crisis, the so-called 13 Days of October 1962, is an intense story of diplomacy by President Kennedy to force Khrushchev to remove Soviet nuclear missiles from Cuba. When I was an intelligence officer in the U.S. Air Force in the early 1980s, I was stationed at Homestead Air Force Base in Florida, just 90 miles away from Cuba. And Homestead Air Force Base had been the headquarters of the Air Force during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. President Kennedy even came for a visit after the crisis was over 
to thank the Air Force personnel at Homestead Air Force Base. So we'll see you next time for another episode of Mr. O'Grady's History Time Machine Podcast.